Hello, you're listening to When We Had Cancer, a podcast where I, Sarah Marion, a 25-year-old medical student at UVA, sits down with cancer survivors to listen to their stories since diagnosis. The purpose of these vulnerable conversations is to let survivors know we are here to listen, and more importantly, that it is safe to share. Perhaps these conversations can make all of us, whether we're healthcare professionals, those in training, or the general public, a little more empathetic to the experiences of others. Perhaps survivors will feel some solidarity from listening, and current patients can find hope in hearing stories of those who have come out the other side. This week, I'm joined by Deborah. Deborah, do you mind introducing yourself? My name is Deborah Clarkston, and I'm a survivor of five years. I have been a nurse for over 40 years, and uh, so I had a, maybe a little different experience than some folks because uh, people automatically assumed I knew everything about cancer, and that's not always the case. Just because you work in, you know, nursing doesn't mean you know everything about every illness. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. I definitely want to hear more about that. Um, so tell me a little bit more. Um, what sort of cancer did you have? And can you kind of walk me back to the early parts of the diagnosis? Um, I was supposed to have had a mammogram done. I was a good little girl. and From the time I turned 40, I got a mammogram done every single year. And I was supposed to have one. I usually do them in March. And the doctor's office scheduled the one for the 2017 before, like a week before my insurance would pay because they would only pay for yearly. So I had to cancel that appointment and got real busy and fooled around and didn't get another appointment made until May of that year. So it was May the 1st and I went and had the mammogram done and I did it at the facility that I'd worked at for 40 years and knew everybody that worked there. And um, always before they would say, um, go ahead and get dressed. We'll have the radiologist look and then we'll, you know, and we'll let you know that, you know, everything's okay. Well, this time they didn't do that. And I knew why, because I could see myself, there was something different on the scan. And so, um, when they didn't tell me to go ahead and get dressed and they just said to wait, I knew there was an issue. And the, um, radiologist that I'd worked with for decades uh, came to the room and he had this look on his face and I said, I'll do it for you. I've got cancer, don't I? So I said it for him. And uh, he said, well, we don't know yet because you don't really truly know till you do a biopsy. And I knew that. Um, but he went ahead and, and scheduled an ultrasound. And about three weeks later is when I uh, was able to have the biopsy done. And at and this point, I hadn't told anybody yet because I didn't see the sense in worrying them for three weeks while I waited for a test to confirm it. Um, so I just went ahead and told my husband the night before uh, that I had it before I had it done because um, he might have noticed I had um, a band aid or something, you know. So I just wanted to make sure that I had been up front with him, but I didn't want to worry him, so I didn't tell him to the night before. So went had the biopsy done, and the biopsy um, situation was kind of unusual for for me, uh, I think, because I don't think this happens to most people. I ended up with a fairly large hematoma uh, from it, and um, I had a lot of soreness and a lot of pain 
uh, afterwards, which I don't think is, is normal or common uh, for folks to have. And so that took me a couple of weeks to get over that. But um, the results came back, and they came back as a triple negative uh, breast cancer. Um, so um, at that point, I'm like, okay, we know what we got something wrong. Let's fix it. Let's take care of it. Because I'd always worked ICU, ER, and there you diagnose things, and you go ahead and you start doing interventions. Well, I got told, oh well, you can you will have an appointment here in about three four weeks to meet the um, uh, the surgeon is who I spoke with first. And then he said he would like for me to talk to the oncologist next. So there was another two or three weeks to see the oncologist. And then they wanted mammogram, uh, not a mammogram, but an um, MRI done. So they had to have the MRI done. Uh, long story short, I didn't get my first chemo treatment until July. Uh, so, you know, I was a little frustrated and a little angry. I'm like, I'm used to, you know, find a problem, let's fix it. And it took that long. And what happened in that amount of time is it went from one spot about the size of a fingertip to three spots about the size of a fingertip, uh, all on the same breast. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was really eager to get started with treatment, and they started me with uh, chemotherapy because they said they felt like it would, um, if they had done the surgery first and the cancer came back, they wouldn't know what would work with it, and they wanted to do chemo first to see what would work. Mm -hmm. So they did the chemotherapy, it shrunk down a whole lot, and then in November, um, the day before Thanksgiving, I had the, um, um, I, when I opted, because you have so many choices, I opted to go ahead and have both breasts removed, the double mastectomy, because um, my dad had colon cancer, so I thought, what happens if I just remove one breast, it comes back in the other breast, and I still end up with colon cancer at some point. I just thought that would decrease my exposure to radiation, my exposure to chemotherapy and stuff to go that route. So that's what I opted to do gotcha. for my situation. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I can only imagine the, the waiting Right, in between a diagnosis and the treatment, right? And just sort of, you know, I, especially because you said you were an ICU nurse, right? An emergency yes, ICU right. nurse. And so, if this person's not breathing, let's put them on a ventilator and help them breathe. <laughs> yeah. Let's get, let's get going, let's get something done. Well, like if it, someone has an infection, you, you want to get them started on antibiotics right away. Yeah. So, you know, my thought process, hey, you found this cancer. Now, let's, we know what to do to get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. And it's just this long, you know, it seemed like a long, drawn-out process because we're starting with the 1st of May until the middle of July. Yeah. So that was a fair amount of time. Right. Uh, you know, so I think I was very, you know, I was very frustrated. I think I came to accepting really rather quickly, oh, okay, I have this wrong with me. I think sometimes people go through a denial phase. Yeah. Um, and that may help through this process. <laughs> but, but I didn't, I, you know, because I had been expecting to have colon cancer because uh, my dad and aunt had it. So I, I had always figured I'd end up with colon cancer at some point. Mm -hmm. And when it, when it ended up being breast cancer, I was kind of surprised. But I thought, well, 
No, you know, if you're susceptible, you're susceptible. If you have the genetics, you have the genetics. So, um, you know, I, I think I came to acceptance pretty quickly, and I guess that added to the frustration because mm-hmm. I guess if I was in denial, the longer the process took to get to treatment yeah. would give me time to get to acceptance. Well, I didn't need that. I guess I came to acceptance pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. That you know, that's interesting. I mean, you know, I think your point about just kind of being able to grapple with the diagnosis a little bit better because you had family members that went through their own cancer battles. Um, but all, I also wonder if it, if it also had its unique challenges because you had people close to you that, that also had cancer. So I'm curious, you know, having, you said your dad had colon cancer and then you kind of having a cancer diagnosis and then thinking about what that would mean for you. How do you think your family's cancer affected how you approach beyond just, you know, accepting your diagnosis? Like what, did you have certain fears that you think maybe came from um, family members with cancer or, you know, just kind of coping stuff that maybe you saw worked well or, or something like that? My dad had a very good attitude. Um, you know, he, he, he more or less told us that cancer, he wasn't going to die from cancer is what he told us. And he actually lived 12 years after his colon cancer. Oh, wow. um, and, it, and, it, and it came back one time. Um, and he just told the surgeon, he says, well, just take all my colon out. He says, because if I don't have it, I can't get cancer in it. So maybe that was where my attitude came from, going ahead and removing both breasts. It was mm-hmm. like, well, they're both gone, you know. Of course, I know that the cancer can come back in chest wall or it can come back in, in ribs or something like that. I'm not naive there, but I know I was decreasing, you know, the chances a yeah. lot by doing that. Um, so I think I got that attitude from him. Now, his sister, though, had the total opposite. Um, she she just decided she was going to die, and she didn't really do things to be as healthy as she could be through the treatment process. And she did die um, from her cancer. Um, so I had both of those role models for me. Um, and you talk about fear. Uh, I think the only real fear that I had through the whole process was radiation. I really did not want radiation because I'd had a sister-in-law who um, had had radiation, and she ended up with several blood vessels that the radiation had caused to decrease in size. So she ended up with blockages, you know, that it ended up, you know, she didn't get have good circulation to her leg, and her leg, like, turned ice cold, and she had to be um, raced off to a helicopter, actually. Three times she was helicopter for different blockages oh, wow. to her leg um, to put stents on to, um, so that she would have a circulation to her leg and not lose her leg. And I think, of anything, you know, I was sort of scared of radiation, mm-hmm. although I had seen people experience radiation and not have that kind of side effect. I guess her situation woke me up to it. Mm-hmm. And that's why one of the reasons why I didn't opt for a lumpectomy, because the lumpectomies, they usually recommend uh, radiation. Mm-hmm. And so if I had a fear, it was probably more the radiation, and that was due to the experience of someone I, I know. Gotcha. And, and uh, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, yeah, you know, I think in doing this podcast, a lot of women um, have spoken about just how much outlook 
impacts the journey. Um, and you know, the, it's <laughs> from sort of the N of 12 or whoever, how many I've had on this podcast, you know, it seems that the positivity really makes such a big difference. Oh, I think so. Um, my dad was very positive through his situation. And it was really funny because someone came up to me um, and said, oh, Deb, I've heard you've been really sick. And I looked at her and I said, no, I've been fine. And she goes, I was told you had cancer. And I said, oh, yeah, but I'm getting that treated. I mean, it was almost <laughs> like I treated it like a chronic disease, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm got it in control. I just, you know, I didn't feel like that I was out of control or it was out of control, mm-hmm. I guess. But that's why I didn't consider that I was sick. To me, being sick means you aren't feeling good. You can't do your day-to-day things. The only work I missed was the six weeks to recover from the mastectomies. Mm-hmm. And I chose to do that at Thanksgiving. So there was only two weeks left in the semester. Um basically two weeks, three weeks left in the semester, and then it was Christmas break. So I was able to come back to work right at, at the college where, I, where I'm the coordinator of the nursing program. I was able to come back um, and not really miss that much work. And then when I was receiving chemotherapy, I only missed the days that I had chemo. I only missed, you know, I had it, had it scheduled for, for Thursday afternoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Friday was a light day for me schedule-wise. And so I would get chemo Thursday afternoons, have that light day on Friday, and have the rest of the weekend to, to you know, sort of recover from any any effects that the chemotherapy had had. So I think that helped me a lot with the feeling that I wasn't sick because I was able to um, continue um, working and participating in things my family did. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's very that's awesome actually that you know that you you didn't let it I guess consume the rest of your life and and having such a positive attitude about um you know just taking care of it treating it and and kind of being more than just you know someone with a cancer diagnosis I suppose um I'm curious so you um have this nurse nursing training in your background did having cancer impact the way that you think about patient care or taking care of patients or um you know teaching nursing students good patient care things like that well one of the things i've always done with nursing students is um you may think that you don't have to teach people how to care but in a way you do, um, because uh, what I would have them do is read uh, books written by folks experiencing certain things. And so one of the books, some of the books I've had folks read was Christopher Reed's book about having the spinal cord injury, Michael Fox's book about having um, Parkinson's disease. But I had a, had a whole reading list of books for students to read because I felt like they had to know how the diagnosis impacted them because the role of nurses is different from physicians and other healthcare team members. And that is helping the people cope with what they have going on with them. Um, so I, I've, I've had books with, with different folks that had, uh, usually these weren't famous people 
that had written books about their cancer journeys. Uh, I would have the students, you know, um, choose which one they wanted to read. They would read the book, and then they would present in class what they learned from the situation mm-hmm. of how to help people. Um, I'd like to think I've always been, you know, a caring nurse and would be a listener to people because everyone's experience is totally different. Um, you know, I had no, because my thought was, thank God it's just my breast instead of a colon. Because I'm like, these breasts are just a lump of tissue that I'm not using anymore. Um, whereas my colon, I'm still using. So you know, I had prepared myself to have colon cancer. And when it was breast cancer instead, I was like, okay, you know, if I have to have it, don't want it. But if I have to have it, I'm, I'm glad it's here. Whereas another woman would have just been so impacted by their image, their, what, their, their self-image of themselves. Um, how they would feel about themselves as a woman, so many different things that um, that I didn't encounter, but part of it was due to my age, part of it was due to the great relationship I have with my husband. Um, so there was, you know, different factors for everybody. Mm-hmm. So I've always been a listener because just because one person's experience is one way doesn't mean that the next person's the same. Um, you know, and I, I guess being a nurse teaches you a lot of that. Like, I don't know how many times I've been with families that someone has, has died, in the, and, you know, you get all kinds of different reactions at that point in time. And they're all okay. They're all normal. And everyone's having their reaction for their back, you know, the experiences they've had in the past and, you know, the relationship they have with the person and just, you know, any fears they have about not having that person in their life. So it's all, you know, so I think I've been a listener. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's changed. I've become more of an advocate um, since having cancer. Um, I've worked with um, UVA's uh, Cancer Center. They have an outreach uh, to Southwest Virginia where I live. Um, And the Cancer Center itself is five hours away. And it's not the cancer center that I went to, but um, being where where I live, it was closer to go um, to into Tennessee to get my care. But I've worked with with the outreach that they do at the uh, University of Virginia's Cancer Center, helping with some of the research they're doing in the area, recruiting of uh, people to uh, help you know to be um, part of research studies and that sort of thing. This to sort of help with the um, folks in Southwest Virginia being able to get better and more cancer care than they currently have, how to prevent cancer um, and and that kind of thing. So I think it helped me become more of an advocate. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I think, you know, advocating for the patient populations that aren't having the same great outcomes that we brag about when it comes to these advancements in cancer, right? I mean, it's sort of this interesting thing where we have these excellent cancer advancements coming out on, you know, people are like, oh, 20 years ago, um, you know, cancer care was so different. Like things are changing and evolving and it's awesome. But then what's unfortunate is that there's still disparities, right? There's still people in, whether it's rural communities, whether it's um, people of lower socioeconomic status, um, 
you know, different uh, non-English speaking patient populations, like just not having the same outcomes when it comes to cancer care. And so, you know, I'm definitely a proponent of advocacy and tackling these. But you know, I think the sad part is that so often people decide for themselves they can't go forward with the treatment, whether it's because they have to travel or they, you know, they just, they, they are the ones that shut the door mm-hmm. on the care they get because um, a lot of places have all kinds of programs and stuff to assist people and help people. Um, yeah, sometimes people's category can change um, uh, with with their insurance or whatever because of they, now they have cancer. Um, there's a lot of, of different programs out there to help people. And I think some people actually shut the door on what they can have have because yeah. they do that. Um, I said to somebody, I said, now make sure you get, um, go ahead and have some DNA testing done about your breast cancer so that you know if it's the type that your sisters and daughters and I'm not, not your sisters or daughters or other people could, you know, that you're related to could end up having. And she goes, she said, um, no, no, it costs $400. And I says, no, that is the cost. But if you tell them you can't afford the $400, there is a scholarship type thing that will pay for it. Mm-hmm. And she, and she went back and she asked, and sure enough, it got covered. And that gave that much information to all the women in her, uh, that's genetically connected to her. They gave that information for their decision-making and processes in the future. Um, but she didn't know about that. And I think that is one of the things too we have to do because I think there is a lot of help out there for um, folks, but they often think it's not available for them or they just can't afford it or whatever. And there's usually something maybe that can make a difference and help. Definitely. Yeah. You know, education is such a, such a big thing. And I mean, I'm just thinking back, I was working in a breast clinic. Um, This would have been last summer and there was a woman who had delayed her cancer care. So she had known breast cancer, and she delayed her cancer care, you know, ca- partially because of COVID, and I understand not wanting to kind of be in a healthcare setting, um, but, but partially due to fear. And, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of fear that's, that's understandable when it comes to cancer, but it was sort of the thing where it almost just, there just needed to be a little bit more education about about what, you know, the surgery would entail, what the treatments, you know, the side effects and those sorts of things. And we spent a lot of time with her in the clinic to kind of talk to her about what it would actually look like and just dispelling those sorts of misconceptions about it. Um, And this was a woman who lived a few hours away on like the other side of, you know, the mountains. And and it was just, I think it was just very clear that there was sort of this gap in in knowledge and and it was clearly affecting affecting her care. so it's so, so important, and, and I really commend you for, for doing the kind of, you know, groundwork and the, the talking to people and educating them, because it can make such a big difference, especially when you think about someone who's going to put off a surgery for a few years and they have known breast cancer, so. I think it's so interesting you said that, because I did have the experience as a young nurse of a patient who um, 
came in uh, with a horrible infection and, and all. And what it turned out to be from is that she had breast cancer, knew she had breast cancer, but all the doctors at the time were men and she did not want to go to a male doctor and didn't know how to research out and, you know, reach out or to, to find somewhere where she could find a female doctor. She was just against having a man see her breast. And she wanted uh, a female doctor. And um, her breast was black. Oh, wow. I mean, it was black. I mean, black is dark night. It was just, you know, rotten, basically. And, of course, it had caused the infection then that she was experiencing. And she didn't live too long after that. And sometimes, you know, people have very good reasons why they delay care that, is important to them. Now, I didn't quite understand it, but that was important to her, and that's all that mattered. Mm-hmm. But I just think it was so sad that she couldn't reach out to someone and say, I need a female doctor and, you know, help me find one. And I think that that's kind of sad that um, folks don't feel comfortable doing that. But the other side of the coin is, too, is I think lots of times it's a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes because people think well if I get cancer I'm just going to die and they actually speed the process along by not getting treatment and doing the things to stay healthy and to help themselves like my aunt did because um, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy like they would rather be right about what they were thinking Mm -hmm. than actually doing you know getting checked early and and get you know <laughs> yeah because yeah, yeah I've heard people say before well I've smoked my whole life so I know I'm going to get lung cancer you know and I'm like well then get the scan it don't take five it doesn't only takes five minutes to get a scan <laughs> catch it early yeah. and uh you know not have to go through maybe surgery or who knows you know if you can catch it early yeah. and they were like ah, i'm just like they're resigned and they're like well you know it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy i i'm going to get that cancer yeah. and i'm going to make sure it happens by not getting getting yeah. screening done it is it is you know it, it definitely has some some merit because if you think about just the annual mammogram um there's you know evidence-based research as to why we're doing recommending a annual mammogram for women right and so if you are someone that you know doesn't keep up with it then you're right then you increase the chances of catching something later when in theory you can catch it earlier and, and maybe have better outcomes um and so i guess i going off of that point i'm curious in this kind of conversation about um barriers to cancer care I mean, I'm thinking about all of the women I had to basically, you know, argue with in the family medicine <laughs> clinic a year ago about, you know, why they need to get their mammograms and um, where they should go to get their mammograms and why they should do it, even though they haven't done it in five, six years. Why do you think so many people, so many women don't get mammograms on a regular basis, I'm talking, you know, you said you were a good girl and you got your mammograms every year. Why do you think there are so many women that don't keep up with it? And what do you think we can do in our communities to increase the, the numbers, I guess, of people keeping up with their care? Well, of course, one, one of the things is it has to be convenient. Uh, you know, it, it can't be, you know, something that, 
um, is a lot of barriers to doing it. Um, so it needs to be close to where people are. They, it should be easy to make the appointment. There's no prep or anything for it, so that helps out a whole lot. But I think lots of times women don't make themselves a priority. And I think that's part of it. They're usually taking care of family members. They might be the breadwinner. I mean, there, there's just, you know, there are just so many irons in the fire, and that's one just one more thing. And sometimes I think that's difficult. Uh, one of the things that I really encourage when, when I'm talking with women and stuff like that and I'm telling my story, I, I really say, listen, I started, I, when I turned 40, because I'd always been told when you turned 40 to go downhill, <laughs> I said, I was just going to, on my birthday, start making all the appointments I needed to, to get my eyes checked, to make, you know, to, you know, make my appointments for my mammogram, um, as I got, you know, with my dad having colon cancer, um, to get my colonoscopy, you know, done as recommended every five years. I just started, you know, doing that on my birthday. That was my day, and that was my day to, you know, make sure I was taking care of myself. And um, I don't know how many women have said, well, I guess I could take care of myself for one day, you know, and get that focus a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think another thing, too, is with these computerized systems and the doctor's offices and stuff now, there should be something that just pops up on the screen and says it's been a year since this person's <laughs> had their mammogram um, that makes it big and obvious. Um, and it's too bad, you know, if it popped up, and you say, oh, well, you're here at the office already anyways. Why don't you step over here and get your mammogram done, you know, before yeah. you leave? Yeah. Um, we don't have those setups, um, unfortunately. So that's, that's trouble, uh, a problem. Um, in this area, we've got the health department has a mobile unit so that they can go different places and set up uh, for folks to have mammograms. Um, and I know the healthcare system, the major healthcare system in the area, is working on getting a mobile unit um, because it's really, you know, funny how people don't want to travel a long distance away from um, they, where they live. You know, it's like if it's more than 20, 30 minutes, that's now too far, you know, type yeah. thing. So the mobile units, they can uh, go around and, and be, be places. Yeah. Uh, that's convenient because I think convenience is another part of it. But I think another part of it is is getting that comfortable with, hey, I want to find this early if I've got to have it. You know, because the statistics are out there. What is it? It used to be one in nine women. It's one in eight now, isn't it? That oh, uh, off we'll the top have... of my head, I don't. <laughs> I, I think it's one in eight now. It used to be one in nine because I thought it was like a baseball team. One person on the team was going to end up with breast cancer. But I think it's one in eight now. So, you know, women need to think about that, you know, when you're sitting in a room with women saying, well, has this many of them will end up with breast cancer. So why don't I catch it early in case I'm one of the, I'm the unlucky one that gets it, you know, let me catch it early, you know, yeah. get that attitude going. Yeah. Um, and instead of this, like, I dread it, don't want to hear that I have it, you know, type thing. Well, if you caught it, you got it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think you are, 
it seems very clear to me that denial is not something that you dealt with. And I think, you know, I think it's... And I try to understand it. I understand people dreading it. Mm -hmm. I do get that. I mean, you know, I didn't want to have cancer, you know, but at the same time, when the evidence is there, okay, (laughs) you know, or... Like I said, the evidence is there that one in eight women will get breast cancer. So, you know, um, you know, I guess my thought is, okay, let's do what we can do to prevent it or or catch it early and treat it early versus waiting, you know, till it's late um, and having problems. Um, One of my my grandchildren's other grandmother, um, we we were having a conversation about my going for my colonoscopy and she's five years older than me, and I think at the time I'd already had three of them or four in my lifetime, and she posed, well, I've never had one. And I said, why are you doing that to your family and to yourself? And she says, what do you mean? I said, you're letting it advance if you've got it. Because all these cancers don't have signs and symptoms until they're really advanced. Mm -hmm. Do the screening, find it early. So she did go, and she had, I think, three polyps that they were able to remove and prevent her from getting colon cancer. Mm. So, you know, it's, you know, it's, I, I don't, I, it's that dread versus, the, yeah. you know, I, I think people, most people just go into the dread mode. Yeah. And I think some of it, too, is how horrible cancer treatment was in the past. Some of the treatments now, people don't get as sick as they used to get. Um, and there's things to help with some of the side effects. Um, I had the medication that helped with the white blood cells. And that made a huge difference, I'm sure, in my situation. Yeah. Because, you know, that you know, they kept me from getting an infection. That was why I, I didn't work in the hospital during that time period. Um, to still protect myself, you know, from, you know, where my immune system was run down. But I, you know, but I was still able to go to work and work at college. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also that uh, it really, really helped. Well, my grandmother, when she uh, had, had her cancer, she had uh, lung cancer. Um, when she had her cancer, they didn't have anything like that. So she had infections after infection was in the hospital a lot. But that was the 1960s. Yeah. This is not. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, the outcomes are definitely better than they used to be. And I think, yeah. you know, people are still carrying with them. They still the, have that memory. Right. They the still memories have that memory and about. Yeah, the connotation from the past of what it means to have something like breast cancer. Um, but the good news is, you know, our treatments are pretty good, um, especially if you get in the door early. Um, so, but the, but something, you know, I think we're kind of get, wrapping up on time here, but I think one point that you were making earlier, I just want to want to bounce back to about the fact that, you know, a lot of women out there <laughs> um, are the caretaker of people in their lives, their spouses, their children, their parents, their friends, whomever, right? And I think, and I think taking that time to take care of yourself, whether that looks like scheduling your annual mammogram, following up on maybe a abnormal mammogram, getting your colonoscopy, whatever it is, can be hard um, and take maybe second place to other things that are going on in your life. And and it's this is not the first time I've heard a sentiment like this from a woman who 
um, had breast cancer. And so I just really want to, you know, have that point really come across with this podcast episode that, um, you know, it's unfortunately the reality for a lot of women that they're not prioritizing themselves. And when it comes to their health, they should, um, especially when it comes to preventative cancer care. So (laughs) I think Deborah and I are both saying to whoever's listening, you know, get that mammogram, schedule that mammogram, whether it's on your 45th birthday, take care of your, take care of yourself. You're, it's okay to put yourself first. Um, it's really important and, and you really don't want to regret it down, down the road. Um, well, so this was a really interesting, um, episode and I feel like we went it, we got, we got more into a discussion, which I really liked, you know, as opposed to more of kind of a story, story mode. Um, so Deborah, this was fantastic. Is there anything like you want to kind of leave us with at the end of the episode here about, you know, your journey or things you want to make sure people know or kind of lasting, lasting thoughts about cancer in general? Well, I don't want anyone to walk away thinking I had a lovely time <laughs> through through it all. I went to a conference in, in San Diego, and I was very anemic at the time, which, you know, your chemotherapy can do to you. I was super anemic, and my daughter wanted to go to the San Diego Zoo, and I said, fine, make arrangements, um, and, and you know, for us to get there and that sort of thing. And she says, well, we can take this bus. And uh, I checked, and it's supposed to drop you off. Uh, rather close to the zoo. Well, it turns out it dropped you off at the bottom of a hill, and we had to walk up the hill. And when you're anemic, you have no energy to start with. And so I was able to take a few steps. Finally, it was in a park, and I was able to sit down for a few minutes somewhere. And we got. it took us forever to get up to the zoo. And when we got there, we just rode the train around and then it was time to go back and catch the bus, the last bus of the day. <laughs> so it isn't all lovely and wonderful stuff either. I want to make sure people know that and make sure that you get a support system of people that you can talk to, that you can, um, you know, just say, hey, um, I, I bit off more than I could chew today. Um, you know, don't let me do that again, <laughs> you know, prevent me from doing that. But, you know, and just know that that happens with people that, you know, if you know someone with cancer, reach out to them and say, hey, um, can I, you know, I've got to make a lasagna for my dinner anyways. Why don't I make a second pan for you? It, you know, it's the same amount of work for me to do that. I mean, little things like that can really help a lot with people that have have cancer, and that you know can just really make the difference on a day from someone maybe sinking into depression, like I just can't do anything, or I don't feel good today, and and they they would have that casserole in the freezer or in the refrigerator they know they could heat up. I mean, just little things like that. You know, a little bit of kindness can make this world such a better place yeah i like that thank you for for that um and sharing you know the kind of hard a little a little piece of what i'm sure was a pretty hard journey um well thank you so much deborah for um coming on the podcast with me this week and um, thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of when we had cancer